I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Oh, I'm so excited this week to bring to you two human beings who happen to also be personal friends of mine, Heather and Josh Avis. They operate a company called The Lucky Few, which is a social awareness brand on a mission to create a more inclusive world with an emphasis on shifting the Down syndrome narrative. They work toward this mission through the diverse and inclusive content they create on their Instagram account, The Lucky Few Official, and the books that Heather writes, The Lucky Few, Scoot Over and Make Some Room, and the stages that Heather ends up speaking on. They have a multi-ethnic, ability-diverse, adoptive family, and they know that this place, this world that we live in, is a place that every single person belongs, that we can only embrace our differences if we're able to celebrate them, and that life is better when we make room in our lives for those who have been missing. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Heather and Josh Avis to the Rise Together podcast. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have Josh and Heather Avis, or Heather and Josh Avis. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the sequence of how we introduce these human beings, but they are amazing. They happen to be personal friends of mine. Do not be biased by the fact that I actually like these people a lot in real life. But they together work on something called the Lucky Few, and they have what I would call a social awareness brand that is on a mission to create a more inclusive world where the emphasis on shifting the narrative around Down syndrome is a big part of what they do every single day. They work towards this mission through the diverse and inclusive content they create on their hit Instagram account, The Lucky Few. And Heather is a prolific writer of books. Uh, The Lucky Few is her first book, Scoot Over and Make Some Room, her second. They are available everywhere. We will include links in the show notes to make sure that all of you can pick them up. But uh, more than anything, 
they are trying to shout the worth of people that sometimes are not afforded their worth being shouted about. As a multi-ethnic, ability-diverse, adoptive family, they know that this world is a place where everyone belongs, that we can not only embrace our differences, but we should celebrate them and that life is better when we make room in our lives for those who have been missing. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Heather and Josh Avis to the Rise Together podcast. Friends. Hey, Woo! friends. I'm so excited that you guys are here. All right, this so that was great. my introduction. Uh, would you take a moment and more eloquently introduce yourselves and your work to the listeners who maybe are not yet familiar with the amazing things that you're doing to be light in this world? Yes, that was very eloquent, Dave, and very in informative. I feel like you hit it all. Um, <laughs> That's a lot of words. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Everything Dave just said. That was great. So I feel like we, we have to go back towards the beginning or back a, a bit to really get to where we're at. And the short of it is, and we can unpack this however you choose, um, we grew our family through adoption. And our first adoption was a little girl with Down syndrome. And it's a long story. Um, we weren't looking for a child with Down syndrome. That It happened to us. Thank God for that. And once we brought her home, it didn't take long for us to realize that this world does not make space for people who have Down syndrome, for lots of different kinds of people, but specifically to us, for people who have Down syndrome. And so all the systems that put together what our life day-to-day -day looks like work for me as an able-bodied, neurotypical white woman. And for my husband, who is also able-bodied, neurotypical white male. And they don't work for my kid who has Down syndrome. And so for me, as her mom, and Josh can speak for himself, but for Josh as her dad, that's just unacceptable. And that, so it started really organically in trying to make room in the world for our daughter Mason to be herself, fully herself, not to have to conform to what more neurotypical children do, but to show up fully as yourself. And in order to do that, systems need to be rebuilt, broken down and rebuilt. Um, and so we, I would say that we are creatives who do this work mostly through storytelling and creating content that gives people an opportunity to take note of what's happening around them and in their own world and then to scoot over and make some room and to shift things in their own spaces in a way that works for everybody, not just for them. Because I think when we work, when we create spaces that work for everybody, we're all better off. That's what we've learned. I had uh, Dr. Ed Barron on not terribly long ago, and we were talking about how the system is not broken. The system is absolutely 100% created to produce the outcome that it produces. Yeah. And I think a lot of the work that you do is to challenge the possibility of a new system that might actually accommodate space for anyone who is not currently advantaged by the system that disadvantages them. Uh, I know you don't only have Mason. You also ended up also adopting two other human beings, which ends up creating additional layers of interesting make room for conversations in how Truly and Augie end up becoming a part of your story as well. Tell me a little bit about your other kids too. Yeah, so um, our oldest, Macy, that we've already spoke about, she's 12, and then we have a nine-year-old, Truly, and then we have a six-year-old, August. 
And the story goes with getting, bringing True home who's also adopted. Uh, we went through a, a private agency uh, trying to control as much as we could with Macy. And then, man, that got flipped. The universe really flipped that upside down. And so the second round, we went through the county, which is a whole different ballgame. But we knew if the universe is going to do this anyways, let's keep our, our hands open. So, so we went into it thinking, okay, we're not sure what we're going to get. We had some parameters, but we, we said yes to a lot of things. And because it's the county, things tend to be a little bit crazier in terms of you may get a sibling, you may get all kinds of different um, substance abuse and, and all these things. I mean, you know, you're an adoptive dad. Uh, and so, you know, what happened was uh, we got a perfectly newborn little girl. Uh, healthy newborn little girl that is uh, African-American in Guatemala. And so that brings into the multi-ethnic part of our family. And that's Truly Star. She's our spicy little uh, middle child who <laughs> lives up to her name. Oh gosh, we could do a whole episode. Uh, we could do a whole episode on Sawyer and on Truly. I, I 1000%. Truly yes. is destined to change this world period end of sentence but we could do a full episode about yeah. her greatness yes yes so to uh so then we have three kids uh and and we continued to grow our family with two little girls and it was about time to adopt again and we weren't looking uh again the universe does what the universe is going to do and this is part of uh, a story that we've stepped into um i'd like to say it's like the flow you know we just we jumped in and we were presented with a little boy. Well, we were presented with a, a mom who had a little boy in her tummy that um, in utero, she discovered that he has Down syndrome and a congenital heart defect. And we weren't looking to adopt another kid with Down syndrome. And one thing led to another, we got to know her and a lot of it, a lot of awkward conversations in the beginning, a lot of heartfelt, is this what we're gonna do? A lot of prayer a lot of talking with our community. And as we step closer and closer to this family, this was our little boy. And that brings us to August Riker. And he's our youngest. He's the baby. Uh, and we have a beautiful relationship with birth family. And he's our little introvert. He's our little creative. He is, he's like a feeler. He's, a, he's so in tune with the room, with mom and dad. I mean, in COVID, he must have, he's come up to us quite a bit and just, you know, he'll put his arms around us and he's like, it's going to be okay. You know, uh, and so. Um, so is, that, he holding, yeah. is he holding Woody when he tells you that? Or is that. <laughs> yes, yes, he has a love for Toy Story. Oh. All things so, Toy Story. The Lucky Few is the name of the company, is the name of your first book, is kind of the mission that you are pursuing. Will you explain a little bit about what the name means and why you felt called to share your story and, and, and what you hope people might take away from embracing the idea of being one of the lucky few. Sure. Prior to bringing our oldest daughter home, we pursued, when we started the adoption journey, we were pursuing a child, a healthy infant. And I think a lot of people, you know, like when they're pregnant and you say, what do you want? You say, I want a healthy infant. And then you, and then we find out about a little girl with Down syndrome and my my ideas about what it meant to be the parent of a child with Down syndrome were all negative. There wasn't a positive idea mm. there. And this is coming from, this is like a lot of backstory, but I'm a, I was a special education teacher. And so I had these incredible students who had Down syndrome who I adored. 
with all of me as their teacher and their families I loved, but not as the mom, right? Like that's a whole other scenario. And then Mason comes home and it took us like a, a split second to recognize that she is just magic and that her Down syndrome, well, that, and then over time, recognizing that her Down syndrome is in fact an asset. And we've only ever thought of it as a deficit mm. prior to bringing her home. And even in those early years as her parents, maybe early months as her parents. And I just remember one day thinking, I remember actually being in a public space with her when she was a real little baby and there were lots of people around and lots of kids. She was the only kid with Down syndrome, which is often the case when we're out and about in the world. Well, besides her brother and thinking, wow, no one else here has a kid with Down syndrome. I am so lucky. I'm so lucky to get to be the mom in this room who has a kid with Down syndrome and feeling so overwhelmed by that. And then just started using it as a hashtag, the lucky few on Instagram. And it just kind of got bigger than we are. And so over the years, just realizing having this, a similar conversation with parents, especially expecting parents thousands of times hearing from expecting parents that they, they learn their child has Down syndrome and their reaction is devastation and their reaction is grief. And then talking to those parents six months later, six weeks later, six yeah. years later, whatever it is, and they've completely changed their tune and hundred percent feel lucky. And so that tells me that there's an incredible disconnect yeah. between what we think is and what really is. Yeah. And somehow it's not being communicated clearly enough because people still feel devastated at this diagnosis. So it is our goal. We, we talk about shouting the worth of people with Down syndrome and shifting that narrative. And for us, the narrative shift is that when people think of Down syndrome, they equate that to goodness. They equate that to an asset. They equate that to being really lucky. What's interesting for me personally, because your children have been to our home, we vacationed in Hawaii together, That's right. uh, the opportunity for my kids to interact with and experience the wonder, the awesomeness, the beauty that is your brood has for them normalized, oh, wow, they're rad. They're awesome. Yes, they may have some things that present differently, but their differences don't make them bad. They just end up being different. And I think part of, man, the mission of this podcast, but also I think the mission of your work is to hopefully in some of the storytelling, introduce the possibility that different doesn't have to have a negative connotation, that different can just be different and different can also be beautiful and can it can be amazing i mean your kids forget about it they are amazing children mm -hmm. they happen to see the, the world through a completely different lens and they happen to experience things that other people that don't have down syndrome will probably never ever totally appreciate or experience but there's beauty in the way that they are ultimately processing the world and experiencing the world yeah you you have this mission of trying to create a more inclusive world I'm gonna assume that it's born out of obviously the composition of your family, but was there a single moment at some point early on where you said, you know what? We should just go do this work. This is the work mm -hmm. of our life. This is the calling that we've been put on the planet for, or is it just something that kind of organically happened over time? I think we both have different answers. For me, it organically happened. It was a series of stepping into opportunities and doors opening and me saying, sure, let's try. Sure, let's try initially. So social media is a good example because I, I started our social media account, the lucky few official, 
almost nine years ago. Wow. So Instagram was pretty new. I mean, Instagram's 10 years old. And I just did it like, oh, this, let's just post a picture a day of Macy and show the world a little, or whoever, the hundred people following what it looks like to have a kid with Down syndrome. And then a friend of ours put reposted to that. And then all, all of a sudden I have 15,000 followers and then 30,000 followers, which for anybody is a lot of followers. But, you know, seven years ago on Instagram, that was a lot of followers and almost everyone's engaged, right? <laughs> that long ago. And I had a moment where I was reading through a bunch of different comments on a thread that I had missed of a picture of Mason. And someone said, so-and-so, have you tagged a friend? Have you heard of this account? And she tagged back and said, yes, this is why we are adopting Ruthie. And I went, whoa, what? And I, and I like started digging and found this woman. And when I finally got in touch with her, she was in China that moment adopting their daughter with Down syndrome. And she said, because of our family. And that was a defining moment for me where I realized, okay, I am living out. I have been just kind of saying, oh, sure, we'll try, we'll try. And there was a moment of, let's be a little more intentional here and really look at the impact of what is happening in what is in our hands and see how huge that is. And then in recognizing that, like I said, being more intentional, stepping into it with understanding the grandness of the opportunities that we had. I, I love it. It's so good. And it, what's interesting is I can remember Rachel and I read Jen Hatmaker's book, Interrupted. And it was about interrupting your otherwise normal, perfect life with the possibility of introducing something unconventional or something you didn't think you were necessarily suited for. And in part, it talked about their adoption journey. And it was a seed that was planted that led us into adoption as a thing that would become a part of the foreverness of our family. And it changed the way that I thought about, wow, if maybe I can in storytelling about our adoption journey in a book that I might write or a podcast I might do. Maybe it'll change the way that somebody who previously had some stigma around adoption or stigma around anything that is uncomfortable or different uh, affords them the permission to think differently about it. I, I love that story. And it is so true for anyone who's listening. If you have a story your story may in fact be the thing that gives someone the courage to think differently about what is possible for their life because of seeing a little bit of themselves in you. So uh, yeah. do that. Speaking of books, in your most recent book, Scoot Over and Make Some Room, you tell some fun stories of your kids growing up as well as the heartbreaking stories that I know many people might feel a little uncomfortable to read about. Uh, I'm sure it's impossible to pick, but is there a single story from the book that particularly holds a special place in your heart as you want to try and encourage people to make some room for people who are a little bit different? Yeah, I'll, I can start the story. You can hop in. Um, <laughs> it is the hip hop story, yeah, Dave. Yeah, I was going to say. It is the hip hop yeah. story that yeah. has forever woven itself into every bit of me. Mason uh, loves to dance and... We didn't put her in a, into a dance class until she was about eight years old and it's complicated, but it's hard to find extracurricular activities in which people with disabilities are fully included if it's not specific to disability. And we didn't want her in a disabled dance class. We have nothing against that. We just know that she lives in this world and she's gonna participate in this world and every, everything she does. So we chose the nearest hip hop studio and we sent her I just email the dance instructor and just say, hey, um, our daughter's coming. 
to your studio and she has down syndrome let me know if you have any questions it's kind of how we approach things not like is it okay <laughs> just like hey we're coming if you got a question we're happy to answer and then mason showed up to hip-hop and it was her favorite thing ever and she was in heaven and she looked forward to it all week and um she was a different dancer and she did her darndest she did her absolute best but she still would be off count or out of formation or whatever it was and dance is interesting because everyone is doing the same thing at the same time. Fast forward to her first recital, and we quickly realized that uh, we were at, like a dance mom studio once recital season came. It was so intense. I can't even. I mean, I could go. We could do an entire podcast episode about Mason's first dance recital. But so she goes. So we're practicing, and I realize about a third of the way in, we're about six weeks out of the recital, that um, it's not working. And I had a moment as her mom of, I don't want her to embarrass herself. I don't want her to be that kid with Down syndrome on stage. Everyone's like, oh, that's sweet. Okay. And a little uncomfortable. And what are we going to do about this? Because she's going to need some more support. So I end up having a conversation with different people and the head of the dance studio. Her name is Allison. She's become a dear friend since. And I just said, Allison and I just worked it out and figured out some extra practices and some not having her move around in her formation so much and some peers that she can mirror and things like that. And so fast forward, it's dress rehearsal and Mason had been slaying it. She'd been doing so great and we get to dress rehearsal and it's just different enough with the lighting and the sound and a stage and a curtain and, you know, things she's not familiar with and familiarity expectations are important to Mason to know what to expect makes her feel safe. If she doesn't know what to expect, she doesn't feel safe. I think that's true for all humans. Yeah. Her filter is a little different, right? The way that she approaches it. So it's time the music goes on. She won't go on stage. She's on the side. They run through the whole routine. I'm next to her backstage. Like, all right, girl, you got this. You can do this. You've been doing this. You've got this. And she's like, I can't do it. It's too hard. I can't do it. It's too hard. So through the entire routine, this is her and my dialogue back and forth. And then um, it ends. Allison gets the microphone. She says, hey, we are going to run that again for the formations, but it wasn't for the formation. It was for Macy. And then they run it again. Mason still is like, I'm not going out there. Allison's like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Mason's looking at us like, I don't know what to do. And so we walk out and we're walking around outside. And I know that if we leave, she will feel so defeated that there, she will not do the dance recital. And on a side note, we had 20 people coming to this dance recital. Um, they paid $20 each to watch her dance for three minutes, right? Hmm. And so I'm thinking of those people too. And mo my focus is, I mostly focus on Mason. I'm not telling her any of those thoughts, but those are in my head. We're going around and time's passing and I'm thinking, we gotta go. And then she just says to me, mom, I'm ready to dance. And I'm like, all right, babe. And so we walk backstage and I said, let's tell Allison. So she like, taps Miss Allison and says, Miss Allison, I'm ready to dance. And Allison says, you got it. And without missing a beat, you know, they're in the middle of a rehearsal. So there's dancers on stage, there's dancers on, on backstage and on deck. And without missing a beat, she looks to the people doing the lighting and the music and all those things. And it's like, hey, we're, we're going to need to pull up Uptown Funk, which was the dance, the song dancing Macy danced to. We're going to pull up Uptown Funk. And we're gonna get the lights for that. And I need you to find all of the dancers who are available to dance this routine. And it just so happened that all of them, except one, all of them were on deck for their next routine, which was their ballet class. So they're all in big cream tutus and black satin gloves. And I hear, I, we noticed that they're standing there. One little girl goes, what? We're, we already did that twice. 
And a little girl is like, well, I don't want to, we can't do that dance in this costume. And Allison catches that they're there and turns around and she goes, oh, you absolutely can dance to hip hop in what you're wearing. And no one has to do this, but I expect you to. <laughs> and then another little girl raises her hand and she goes, I want to dance with Macy. And then it was like this chorus of hands raising and people saying, I want to dance with Macy. I want to dance with Macy. And so the, the next song is Uptown Funk. Everyone goes on stage, including Macy. And Allison's like, get in the audience, go watch her. And so I walk in the audience and I'm just hysterical weeping because it was a holy moment of everybody bending and flexing to make it work for her. And I look at the stage and there's a dozen little dancers, all of them in cream colored tutus and lot, like full length satin gloves and Mason and like drop crotch harm pants and a red crop top. And they're dancing to Uptown Funk for the third time, uh, quite a few songs too late. And it, with the kind of production this was, it was hundreds of dancers and tech people and backstage people making it work for Mason. And at the end, she runs off stage and all of the adults backstage are weeping and I'm weeping and it, and she runs in my arms and gives me a hug and she says, mommy, I did it, I did it. I said, of course you did it. You're the best dancer I know. You're the bravest kid I know. And then the next night at the recital, she danced and slayed it and you know, word had kind of gotten around with all the dancers. So everyone kind of stopped and I just sat backstage like surrounded by feathers and sequins and tulle and everyone's cheering Macy on and she and everyone in the audience is there and and she did it and it her dance studio was changed by that and her instructor will tell you um the woman who owns the studio had never had a student with down syndrome in her studio before and it changed her forever and all the little girls who danced with her so that's one of my favorite so beautiful (laughs) I remember I remember getting the video from Josh and it was the greatest uptown funk I've ever seen in my entire (laughs) life so that's amazing I know that you said if people were more educated on Down syndrome, they would be less likely to be negative towards it. Mm. Can you talk just a little bit about what some of the biggest misconceptions around Down syndrome are and maybe how parents can educate their kids or even their adult friends about it so that we can change some of this narrative? I think about my own story with when I was first introduced to Down syndrome and it was because my mom was a special education teacher when I was when I was a little kid. And so I think proximity is huge. And it's all about proximity and relationship. And my mom taught me that it was it was just about these are these are human beings too. There's nothing to be scared of. And I and I and she didn't say that. She was just in proximity to them. And and we saw I saw how they changed my mom. And then it was, oh, there's a relationship there. And I think I think it becomes, it's a human being, it's a humanity thing. And so it's not what we, it's what I saw was it wasn't what my mom was teaching these kids or what we're teaching our kids or what, you know, schools are teaching our kids is what would it look like to actually learn from people with Down syndrome? What would it look like for us to switch that and say, oh, wait, let's pause real quick and, and hear what, what unlearning can we do? So yeah, I think it's it just started for me as a little kid, just proximity. It looks like going to the park. It looks like hanging out at church and community. I mean, post post COVID, we're going to be hanging out again. Mm-hmm. And I think it just looks like an invitation. It looks like a conversation. It looks like it's going to maybe it'll be awkward sometimes when you might want to ask a question or or I don't know, it might be uh something that is unfamiliar but it's okay to be unfamiliar but you need to start with a conversation you start with uh mason's really good at saying hi what's your name just say hi back just say hi back and and go from there 
Yeah, I think there's some like real concrete things that can be done. And especially if you're raising kids, I mean, social media and books and movies and toys, what kind of representation is in your home? Who are you following? What accounts are you following? Because if that, if you don't have direct proximity to somebody with a disability or someone who's different than you in any regard, right? It's going back to that idea of where we, what we're really doing here is teaching ourselves and, and our children to embrace different, mm. to celebrate different to, to see it and to say, this is great, you know, not to like, um, be hush hush about it or feel uncomfortable around it or to say, Hey, I'm kind of uncomfortable around this because it's different, but I've been around different so many times. I know that it won't be uncomfortable forever. And so if, if, who are you following on Instagram? What shows are you watching? What books are you reading? And unfortunately, when it comes to disability, you're going to have to look a little bit harder than you will with some other groups of people, but people are out there, people with disabilities advocate for themselves, you know? So find what they have to say, listen to what they have to say, follow along with what they have to say, invite them into your lives in the ways that you can. I can remember when uh, we were hanging out on the regular, having to have a conversation with people that I happen to be related to about their use of the R word. Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. That like indignant position on political correctness afforded them the luxury of using whatever words they want, whenever they want. They didn't have to feel bad about it. And I was like, well, if you want to come into our house, you're going to have to find a way to release that as a part of your vernacular, because it's just not accepted here. I'm curious how you have found ways to call people out for being uneducated or stereotyping or saying inappropriate things without sounding like an ass without like, you know, alienating them from wanting to actually come into community. But inevitably, I'm sure that you run into people saying dumb stuff, uneducated stuff on the regular. Is there something that you've had to employ that affords them just enough grace to still allow them into your life, but also calls them to task if they've crossed the line or said something stupid. I feel like this is a tricky one because there isn't like a script. I think people want yeah. a script. It's so case by case and you can tell by someone's posture. I also think because of who is in our lives the most, they're just not doing that anymore, you know? So it's yeah. so rare that it happens. And and um, we did have a, a newer friend the other day throw it out in a conversation. I missed it. But what was really great is the other friend there looked at her and said, you can't say that just like just straight up. And I'm not paying, I had no idea this happening, but at the end of our hangout time, this friend who said the R word came over to me and she's like, I am mortified. I am so sorry. That was like my teenage self mm-hmm. coming back and saying that. And I'm like, I don't know. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then she explained it all to me. And, I, and it's like, people are going to say it and they're going to feel, they might feel bad about it. Or if you point it out, I think that it is, you just have to say, oh yeah, we don't say that actually. That's a harmful word. And then if people want to get into it, I think you have to choose the time and place for that, you know? Yeah. But I do find for us personally, I do believe that the majority of people are really trying to do the best they can with what they know and what they have. And so for the most part, when somebody says something that is like way off, you can usually have a a really good, easy dialogue about it. And they're they're like, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't even realize I'm going to try harder, you know, for the most part. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt for sure, but sometimes you run into the person and you're like, this isn't even a fight worth taking up. Go with God. And yeah. when I say go, I mean, go yeah. away from here and yeah. enjoy your yeah. life outside of here. You were going to say something, Joshua. Well, no, I think about 
people's reaction when they first find out maybe a mom has uh, has a, a kid that she's pregnant with that has Down syndrome and their first reaction is, I'm sorry. That's most people's reaction is, I'm sorry. And you have to bring them into, oh, well, what are you sorry about? And, and so then there's a, let me, if we could open our lives up a little bit and just show them um, there's nothing to be sorry about. This is, we may look different. We might act a little different, but we're human beings too, you know? And I think that shows up in different places. And we, I think representation is huge. And I think that Macy and Augie being in general ed classrooms and that we can step into spaces with our work in different places that we can represent in different ads and different, different venues that we keep showing up as we are who we are. It, it, it actually says more, I think, the unspoken of seeing us in different places. And, and we celebrate when we see a model with, uh, I think it was, what was the last one that we just saw? The, was the it a Gucci with, ad? Yeah. It's yeah. a woman with Down syndrome that just did a big Gucci campaign. It's amazing. Yeah. So I there was a family that was, uh, I, I saw a family that was uh, represented in a Gap ad recently <laughs> that had, uh, the, the Avis family was in a Gap ad we and were. I am here for inclusion <laughs> I'm also here for the handsomeness of the Avis is being represented in an, in an ad. So good work, you guys. I love that. Yeah. If, if someone who's listening is interested in resources on how to better educate themselves about Down syndrome, is there something that you point people to? I mean, yes, they should buy your books, but is, <laughs> is, there, is there like a, a, a place where they can go to just become a little better edu- educated about what it is and what it means and, and anything else? Yeah, there's a couple big organizations in the United States. One is the Global Down Syndrome Network. And Global Down Syndrome, everything that you need to know about Down Syndrome in terms of like stats and health and all of that, you're going to find at Global, Global Down Syndrome. And then um, the National Down Syndrome Society and the National Down Syndrome Congress. So the NDSS and the NDSC, um, they both have so much information and are doing they're just huge organizations doing awesome stuff Good in the Down stuff. syndrome community, for sure. Awesome. We'll put we'll put links to both organizations in the show notes so that people, as you're interested, as you're listening, uh, if you want to dive into and get some more, uh, you know, information or educate yourself on what is Down syndrome and what does it mean, uh, dive in. Please do the work. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, you're not just passionate about Down syndrome. You are also, as we've talked about, a multi ethnic adoptive family which you've obviously spoken very candidly about, but uh, we're living in a crazy world where now the conversation around race is something that is wholly and totally different and hopefully continues to be wholly and totally different until uh, we get to a place where uh, things feel like there's just and, uh, and, and right for all people. How has what's happened in the aftermath of George Floyd and everything that's happening in the world hit you personally because of having a, a child of color and, and, and are you thinking differently now about the kind of work that you might do when it comes to shouting worth or making room uh, against the backdrop of race, given every single thing that's happening in the world? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, <laughs> it weighs heavy on me every second of every day that my daughter who presents as black, so she's African and Guatemalan, Guatemalan, but she is a black girl. She will be a black woman is being raised by white parents. Yeah. It is so such a heavy part of her narrative. And that is not because white is bad. It is just the, the reality for her being a 
black girl raised by white parents will be a heavy part of her narrative for her whole life. And that is so heavy. And to see what's happening right now in the race conversation in the United States, it just makes it heavier. And so how do we help her navigate that well as her parents? How do we navigate that well? I think, I think for me, I spoke out more and then I realized I used to speak out more about race and what that meant for myself and my family and my daughter. And, um, I use, I now am just back to just listening because I thought I had undone so much. And I Mm. have, um, I've been working on, I started the work of undoing white supremacy in my own life in college. And that was, I mean, I know that I sound and look very young, (laughs) but that was 28 years ago. 28 years ago, no, 38, no, no. 18 years ago. <laughs> that's wrong. That was 18 she years ago. She started college when she was nine. When I was 10, I started college. Doogie Hauser. Right. But I started to unmantle those things in my own life 18 years ago in college. And in 18 years later, um, I think at some point in my younger years, thought I had arrived somewhere as, I don't know, understanding the complexities of racism in the United States. And I think anyone who felt that any white person who felt that all of us were like, Oh, I, I, even with all of the undoing I've tried to do, there's so much more undoing to do. And my role right now is to listen. And that includes, I think I have been listening more to adoptees of color, black adoptees raised in white families. I've been listening to their voices more than ever. Um, because that is Truly's voice. You know, that's a representation of Truly's voice. And so I'm just listening. That is my work right now in the advocacy of race is to be a listener. Now, and here's the thing, it's like, listen, read, immerse yourself in documentaries or podcasts, but like find, find any and every resource that can help you become a step closer to understanding with an appreciation that you will never ever fully understand. It has been my, like my perspective on it. And I've been grateful for the people who've, you know, afforded me an opportunity to just get a little bit closer, but I too, there was, there was hubris in a younger version of me who believed that, oh, I've read some books and I've watched a documentary. So now I understand this is going to be a forever journey toward understanding. And I, I love the idea of listening as a thing that is the priority uh, and should be, I think, for any, any person um, who is interested and not a person of color. Yeah. So Heather, you've shared the message that easier is not always better. I mean, if there were a through line in your journey, that may in fact be it. Specifically, Mm. you've talked about how you could live a life in which you don't take your kids to restaurants or on airplanes because that's easier, but you don't want the world to be deprived of your children. We talked just a little bit about this idea that easier isn't always better and the gift that pushing into harder sometimes produces. I'll preface it by saying my priority is my kids with Down syndrome. I don't do these things, all three of my kids, but we're not doing the things we're doing at their expense to teach the world a lesson. When we're stepping into spaces that are hard, it's good for them too. And it's harder for me than for them. They're usually doing fine. (laughs) My kids with Down syndrome live in a world that doesn't work for them. We've already established this. And when people have asked me, what's the hardest thing about raising a child with Down syndrome? My answer is the world that doesn't accept them. And what my kids do still is show up and they show up and they show up and they show up every day. And every day, as soon as they step outside our front door, something is going to be difficult for them. And they still step outside. Usually 
with uninhibited joy and bravery. And so I'm watching this unfold as I get to raise them. And the lesson is just so true for everybody, right? So easy is fine, but when you do the hard things, it's, you're going to be better. Mm. Um, and I watch my kids do that. And in order for them to become the best version of themselves, they're up against just quote normal things that any human's up against, but then they're also up against a world that doesn't see their value and worth and they're still there and they're still showing up. So they have been my greatest teachers. And then in applying that to my own life, um, the greatest things that we have accomplished in life and have created, made us better humans are the hardest things that we've, that we've faced. And so it's like the proof is in the pudding, right? Yeah. There's so much of your work that is just a reflection of the lessons that you have been taught because mm. of the way that your children experience the world. And yeah. there's such beauty in that. I just, I love it so much. Knowing what you know, how incredible these children of yours are, how do you deal with the pain that comes from a world that fails them as regularly as it seems to? It's hard. It, I don't know because it's, you want to protect them, but then you also want them to have that lesson of life as well. And so there's a, there is a balance of, of trying to protect them from the things that you know you should protect them from. And then also uh, letting them step into it. I mean, today I watched Heather watch Mason do this distance learning thing, and she's been set up with no supports at all. I mean, we just started to be fair to the, to the teachers and to the administrators. We just started, but it is, it's a, it's not working. And I watched Heather step back. And I think you said out loud, I'm not going to help her. And we want them to step into the spaces and into the, all the places that they can and do the best they possibly can without this learned helplessness. And then, and then watch them and they may do, they may do it differently and that's okay. And so you have to look at the standards too, when it comes to like, safety yeah we're going to step in but i think let's let's revisit maybe the grid that it's been set up in and and what we're protecting them from so and, and school is a great example i mean by the way there's something uh, amazing in that lesson for a parent of any child because sure. i think there's a predisposition we have as parents to try and keep our kids from experiencing pain yeah. beyond a certain threshold that if they were to have the opportunity to process it, it may in fact afford them learning or some grit or some tenacity, or maybe like your children, they find a different way to do it. That is yeah. a departure from something conventional that in having figured it out, arms them to be able to handle whatever ends up showing up next. There, I, there's, there's a gift in that. There's a beauty in that. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I mean, going back to what you're asking, we do, we do um, just tangibly, we have friends who have kids with Down syndrome that we carve out time to be around because it is a, healing restful space and so that's important but to what josh was saying and i'm going to tell a quick story that i think is really appropriate the way that we handle it all is we follow our kids lead a mm. lot and so mason's in sixth grade and we we're doing this distance learning thing and like josh mentioned there's no support in place the teachers are heroes everyone's a hero right everyone's a hero <laughs> except for COVID is the worst and it is an impossible situation it is a lose-lose i think everyone can agree so mason's in a general education musical theater classroom. So she's in sixth grade. There's like 35 kids, all virtual. And I, she's unable right now to read her assignments, to click on the right links, to know what's expected of her without us helping. 
blessed we have three children. She's got six teachers. I'm not even listening to my voicemails. Like, I don't know what's happening. So I have no idea what her class assignments are. She shows up and it turns out that they were assigned to do a monologue. And the teacher had chosen about six different monologues from six different movies. So she's like, who wants to go? And not everyone has to do it. This was yesterday. This was yesterday, like 24 hours ago. So a couple of kids do their monologues and this is Mason's jam. And so she raises her hand and I'm sitting next to her and I'm like, oh, no, 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 babe, put your hand down. And the teacher calls on her and says, Mason, you ready to go? She says, I'm ready. And the teacher says, what monologue are you doing? There's no answer because we didn't know the assignment. And so then I, I do chime in and I'm like, it's this constant figuring out, do I say something? Do I not? Yeah. Like, do I let her just be who she's going to be? Do I try to make her, conform. I don't know, conform? Is it, am I projecting myself onto her? Is this like, is she uncomfortable? Am I uncomfortable? It's constant. And so I do say, oh, she's just really excited. We're going to look through the assignment a little bit more. Right, Mason? She's like, okay. She turns off the computer. I go sit away from her now at the other part of the room because I also have a full-time job, right? <laughs> and so I'm doing my work and then six or seven more kids go. Mason's pumped. And so she raises her hand again and the teacher calls on her again. And she's like, you ready now, Mason? And she says, yes. And she stands up and pushes her chair aside. And she says, hi, I'm Mason. I'm a singer. I'm an actor. And I'm going to do Wicked Defying Gravity. And granted, Mason, part of, her, part of her disability with Down syndrome limits her speech. So most of this was unintelligible to someone who doesn't know her. And I'm across the room going, oh, my gosh. All I can think of is there are 34 sixth graders who have never met her before who are just like snickering and having negative thoughts about her. And I want to run across the room and tackle her and turn the computer off to save her. Right. And I'm like so scared for her and she does her song and she does a little spin and she bows and sits down and puts her, puts herself back on mute and looks at me across the room and she goes, mom, I did it. <laughs> and I just start crying. Cause I'm like, you did. And I was this close to stopping you. I was this close to stopping you. And Chances are some of those little sixth graders are twerps and they are making fun of you. But there's also a really good chance that some of those little sixth graders have never seen someone so uninhibited in who yeah. they are and they are now inspired and they want to know you. And so you keep showing up, babe. Yeah. You keep showing up. Yeah. She just gave permission to a bunch of insecure sixth graders to be themselves and totally. sing wicked, even if it wasn't one of the six Not assigned monologues. <laughs> Let's go. All right, let's wrap this up. On this show, every single week, I like to ask our guests to share a single big takeaway that someone who is listening could implement in their lives today to make their life just a little bit better. Is there one thing, I know it's an impossible question, that you would offer to this audience that if they were to do it today, would bring them just a little more peace, a little more joy, a little more goodness in their life? The thing that I would say is who you are exactly who you are, exactly where you are, is enough, mm. is enough. You need to be nothing more. Exactly who you are is enough. And so show up wherever you're at as exactly who you are. Amen. Amen to that. Ladies and gentlemen, Heather <laughs> and Josh Avis, they're good human beings. They are doing good work. I am confident that every single person listening is now in love with you the way that I am. If people who are listening are interested in getting to know your work better or following you, say again, the Instagram is the lucky few official. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. Um, is there a website that people can go to if they're interested? Yeah. Go to the We also have a podcast, 
which is an amazing resource. And that's the lucky few podcast.com. And everything else is the lucky few official. You guys are amazing. I love you. I appreciate you sharing your story. Ladies and gentlemen, listening in the audience, I am sure that you enjoyed this conversation today. And if you did, I hope that you will take a picture of the podcast, that you will tag myself, that you'll tag the lucky few official, and that you will tell every human being that you've ever met in your entire life about this episode that they, so that they will also listen to it. Between now and then, be yourself and know <laughs> that you are enough exactly as you are. We will see you next week on another episode of Rise Together. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.